Hello, you spectacular people. We want to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving and to say how thankful we are for all of you listeners and supporters of the show. We just got back from a very busy road trip. We have a lot of audio to go through and we're going to be enjoying our Thanksgiving together, eating a lot of grub. So this week, we're putting up this replay of one of my favorite interviews I've done with James Bartlett, who wrote Gourmet Ghosts, and he talks to us about his top 10 L.A. eateries. Enjoy. Have a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to the History Goes Bump Thanksgiving Special 2016. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we have a special guest joining us. When it comes to Thanksgiving, what is something that comes to mind, Denise, other than pilgrims and Native Americans getting together? Well, and also being thankful, but what definitely comes to mind is what are we going to eat? Exactly. Food. And we have the perfect person joining us to talk about that. We are joined by author and journalist James Bartlett. He is going to share with us a top 10 of haunted eateries and bars in the Los Angeles area. James is originally from London. He's been a freelance journalist since 1999, and he's been living in Los Angeles since 2004. He's written about travel, entertainment, food, and the weird and wonderful side of L.A. in over 100 magazines and newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times, L.A. Weekly, Hemispheres, American Way, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, BBC, Film Ireland, Close Up Film, and BBC America. He's also contributed to Variety, Bazaar, The Historian, RTE Radio, and BBC Radio. And he is author of Gourmet Ghosts and Gourmet Ghosts 2, which feature murder, mystery, and history at dozens of bars, restaurants, hotels, and landmarks across Los Angeles. How are you doing, James? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? We're doing great. That's a big switch to move from London to Los Angeles. Yes, it was a bit. Um, it wasn't something I'd ever imagined, as you can probably imagine. But uh, I met I met the right person, and, and she lived here, and uh, she she had the proper job, whereas I'm just a freelancer. So I just thought, well, I'll have to give it a go in America. So oh, felt, so it's always the girl. It's the girl. <laughs> it's often the way, isn't it? That that seems to be the way. Uh, and yes, that's totally the totally the way in my case. Well, we have to ask, what made you decide to look into ghosts to begin with? You know, most freelance journalists out there, people start looking at you a little weird if you're like, well, I'm writing about ghosts. Yeah, it, it really came about uh, sort of partly because I was new to L.A. and I was going to some of the bars and trying to explore a little bit and learn a little bit about the city. And as a freelance journalist, when I was, when I was in a bar having a drink, um, I was talking to the bartender and he told me a bit about the, the history of the bar and he said that it was haunted. So, of course, I thought, well, that would be an interesting story. And so I asked for some more details and he gave me a few more details and, and I went home and did, did my due diligence and looked it up in the newspaper archives and online and couldn't really find a great deal. But I, I did a bit of digging and it just really snowballed from there. I talked to other people. And then I would just mention it in passing and people would say, oh, well, you must go to this place. And you've heard this story and you've heard about this bar, haven't you? And you've heard about that bar and you've heard about this restaurant. And it just went on and on from there. And in the end, I just ended up collecting them. It was a good way for me to see a bit of the city as well and, and to have plenty to drink and to eat, obviously. And eventually I had a lot collected together and, and I thought, well, what am I going to do with them now? And it was my wife who suggested, she said, well, you should you should put them together in some sort of guide, into some sort of book. And so I had a look in the bookstores and online to see if there was a guide that was like this. And there wasn't really one that was like this. So I thought, well, maybe there's a little niche for me there and I'll give it a go. And, you know, here we are sort of five years later. Well, more than that, it, it, the, the first book I did over several years because it was more of a hobby. And then the second one I did a bit more focused wise. 
So now it's sort of many, many, it seems like a million years later. And, and here we are, we've just had the second one out. And so with your books, about how many eateries do you cover in each one or different places? Um, it's, it's 40, 30, 40, 30, about, about 40 in each. And I usually probably research and discard or, or don't find anything good enough or even reject very late. I'd double that, I would say. I mean, it, it's dozens and dozens and dozens I, I research for each one. I've got so many, lots of people at that, that, that the events I go to always mention, you know, well, what about this hotel and what about that restaurant? And usually I've, I've looked into it. And usually, I, I said, try to have a strict criteria for the books that they had to be somewhere you could go, like a bar or a restaurant or a hotel. You know, that's why it's kind of a guide. Otherwise, you're just looking, you know, through the windows and, and looking at old buildings that really could be anything. And they also had to have some sort of corroborating evidence, whether I talked to somebody who actually worked there or whether I found something in the newspaper archives that showed that something did happen there. There was a crime or there was a suicide or a murder. And that made a bit of a connection for me rather than taking the sort of more supernatural route where, you know, that maybe there's a psychic thing or someone says that, you know, they, they felt that there's a presence in the building. And I, I thought... I needed a bit more information than that for it to be convincing. So that each chapter of the book and each entry was kind of like a little story. So you learned a little bit about the building, a little bit about, about the architecture, a little bit about what it was like inside. Then I'd tell some of the stories and the people I'd spoken to, then a bit of the history and, and the true crime, and then something about the food and the drink that you could have when you were there. So it's kind of, kind of a supernatural dating guide, if you like. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. Do you have a location that stands out above some of the others that's like one of your favorite locations, whether it be for the ghosts, the stories, or the food? Oh, that, that's so it's so impossible to say, especially now. I mean, I've done so many, and, and of course it is the question that I get asked the most. I mean, there's places that I love for the look of them, or for the architecture, or for the food, or for the story that I heard. Um, there's some places that I really like because... Someone told me a story that they had experienced there, and I looked it up in the newspaper archives and found something that matched it exactly. You know, that gave me chills. That was a building in downtown that's actually home to a, a very large bookstore. Uh, it used to be a bank. That was a particular story that I found that I would say, it, as much as it's possible to say, I'd say that could be a ghost. That, that could be a ghost in that building. And then there's other buildings that, that we'll talk about today that are just amazing and that are just worth visiting for, for any reason. And, and that I just thought, well, I can't not put them in the book. You know, we run into the same thing. People will ask us, what's your favorite location that you've done a podcast on? And I'm like, probably the next one I'm working on. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's always the next thing. I was doing, I've been doing some research today and I'm thinking about sort of a next book. And I've been looking at the stuff and I'm like, oh, that's quite exciting. I can't wait to get out of the library and get into the, you know, the microfiches again, you know, because that's, it's the undiscovered as opposed to the discovered. You know, I, I, I haven't covered a lot of the most famous stories in my two books. You know, I haven't done a lot on the Black Dahlia and I haven't done anything on the Manson murders, that kind of thing, because there's nothing new I can possibly bring to that. Sure. You know, there's enough crime and enough strange stories without them needing to be famous. So, so they're really much more interesting to uncover than a path that's been well trodden. Oh, I agree with you. And I, you, you were, had mentioned earlier a little bit about sometimes the psychic connection. And I was thinking to myself, wow, he is almost psychic, because I was going to ask you, what mm. were the parameters that you looked at when you would include something in the book? Did you look to see if there was some real history to go behind it? Or did you just go with people's stories? And it sounds like you really looked for something that had legitimate to back up the stories that you were hearing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I really, obviously, if it's something that's, because it's, it's not fiction, so it, it's a non-fiction book, and if it was in the newspaper, no one could ever say to me that I've just made it up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did read books, and I'm, I'm sure you've read them yourself, that are, that are completely, you know, composed of someone going to locations and talking about the feelings and the, and the spiritual connections that they felt they had. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously relevant to them, but it didn't necessarily connect with me because I wasn't them. If I put something in the book that was like, I went there and I spoke to the security guard and he told me that he'd seen this. And then I looked in the newspaper archives and it turns out much like that story of whispers where a story that's usually apocryphal, nine times out of 10, I found out something really had happened either in that building or very nearby that had gone into the consciousness and people had talked about that story. And whether they believe them or not, I, I rarely... You know, it was, it was partly because of 
because I work as a journalist, but I, I didn't really think I spoke to many people who were leading me on or making it up because you could always tell from the little details. I, I didn't ask them, you know, tell me your ghost story because that gives it away. Mm-hmm. I would always ask about the building and the architecture and, and, you know, be more generally interested. And then usually I also found nine times out of 10, if there was an unusual story, people always brought it up. Sure. They love to talk about that stuff. Yeah, very much so. And the, and the places that didn't and didn't like to talk about it, of which there were a few as well. Mm-hmm. And understandably, you know, some hotels don't necessarily want to be related to something that's, even if it is the idea of a ghost, let alone any, any crime. Sometimes they don't like to talk about it. But if you're just friendly and you have a conversation and I, I sort of was making it clear it's not, I'm not pretending to be a psychic or a ghostbuster. You know, I'm not going to sneak in at night with a with a radio control and, and cameras to try and film something. But then the, people are more likely to give you a little information or they will just actually say, no, there's nothing like that. Never has been. You know, forget what it says on the website. Forget what you've read online and other books. There's nothing like that at all. And I, I would take that under advisement and I might put it in the book and say, you know, the venue themselves had no stories, but this is what I read and found out elsewhere. But usually, usually there was a good correlation between the two. I was just going to say it was good that he didn't go in with all the ghost busting equipment yeah. and stuff because you never, ever want to tempt those spirits, do you? <laughs> exactly. It is a bit tempting. And and of course, you know, the, the onus is on you to find something then, you know, to come across something that is unexplained or unusual or spooky. And then it seems to be always a little bit unfair. You know, I've, been, I've met some of these people and, the, and they do the events. And of course, the pressure's on them to come across something. And how can you possibly legislate for that? You know, it's it's the same as someone saying to me, well, how can you prove that there's a ghost there? How could you possibly put that in the book? And I said, well, I can never prove that there's a ghost there. No, that's impossible. It's like proving that there are UFOs. I can't ever possibly prove that. But I can tell you what I found and what I was told and what's happened at the building, as opposed to going in there in the middle of the night when it's bound to be frightening, when the building is settling and there's five people with you who are all expecting something frightening to happen. Well, we thought since there's so many locations between both of these books that it might be fun to do something like, this isn't necessarily the top 10, these are for sure the way that you would rank them, but just 10 places that you think would be wonderful places for people to check out. Yes, yeah, I did have a, I, I put together a top 10 here, and, and I wouldn't say they were in order. I was sort of trying to, I was going to bunch them by place and location, and I thought, but you have readers all over the country, so it's not necessarily, or listeners I should say, it's not necessarily going to be, um, if I speak about downtown, they're not going to know it intimately. But I did put a top 10 together of some places and some you've heard of and some you won't have heard of. Yes. All right. So what do you have down as that first one there? Well, the first one that I that I wanted to put down um, was I, I tried to be as diverse as possible. But there's a restaurant in downtown LA called La Golondrina, uh, which is a Mexican restaurant. And it's on Olvera Street, which is pretty much the sort of the Mexican touristy version of old L.A. Um, obviously, L.A. did start in downtown and, and uh, the Pueblo de Los Angeles, where it was originally settled. That was an early settlement and all, the uh, early Mexican society and community was there. Olvera Street itself is a bit of a construct, but well-meaning. And La Golondrina is one of the eldest restaurants there, possibly the oldest Mexican restaurant in L.A. And I've been in there a couple of times. You know, it's a bit of a tourist favorite. It's great. Elvera Street certainly worth a visit if you're coming to L.A. And I did speak to some of the people there and the very charismatic lady who owns the restaurant, Vivian de Bonzo, her name was. And she told me several stories about how her father, who had owned it before her, said that he had seen something and, and had been scared out of the building. And she said he was a big, big macho man and he was scared. She said that when they've had workmen there, they've seen something, a woman and this was the thing. It was a woman, a la consuela, or the mistress is, is what they called them. And they reckon she was the matriarch of the building going back right to the beginning. And there's, you can still go in to the restaurant now. And there's a picture of it in the book. There's a balcony, which is now in the restaurant, but used to look out onto the street way back. And she's been seen at that balcony, still looking out over her domain. And she's been seen up in stairs in the staff offices and stuff. And that was a good story, I thought. That was something that had that definitely had the element of truth to it when I was speaking to her. Oh, and that's great because they have so many wonderful legends when it comes to Mexican history and such. So that goes hand exactly. in hand. Exactly. Yes, that, that was what she was saying. I mean, we talked a lot about that. You know, she said, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm very much a believer in spirits. You know, she had had the building 
cleared and she had had, the, you know, the building engaged with spiritually. And, you know, she had said, she was talking about, you know, the time that when there were earthquakes proofing the building and that there were strange things were happening there. And I'm just saying, well, you know, strange things like that. Was it an earthquake? You know, this is California, things like that. And she was, no, 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 it was definitely not an earthquake. And I, I, I rarely found in either of the books that any people had any frightening experiences. They were often something that was very everyday or not particularly upsetting. Often the people knew who it might be or suspected. That's nice to hear. And I think for a lot of us, when we do have something that's unexplained, it is one of those, what was that? It wasn't like, you know, you jump and scream and run. It's more like, well, that was weird. Yes. Usually people are, are frightened and run because they're so surprised mm-hmm. or they see something. And, and, and some of the places that, that I'm, I'm going to talk about today, that the, the, the ghosts and the things that people see there are very common. You know, the staff know about them and talk amongst them frequently about it and it doesn't really particularly frighten them. Oh, that sounds like a great place and I bet they have good food there too. Very good food, yes. I was going to say, for, for particular, I've got some specific recommendations for these places, but yes, I had some very good uh, shrimp, shrimp tacos there. Mm. I mean, it's a bit touristy, like I say, but uh, it's a great place. Wonderful. So what is our next one? Well, the second one is actually another another Mexican place, but it's different this time. This is a tequila bar, which is called El Carmen, um, and that's on 3rd Street here, which is sort of towards the center of town towards Beverly Hills. And that's been there for a very long time, from the late 1920s. Um, it was an op- opened by a, a widow called Encarnacion Gomez, which was quite quite the scandal at the time. Um, widowed women didn't tend to open businesses on their own. But she opened it right at the end of the red trolley line, as it was back in the day. And it moved further along to its current location in the 50s. And I know the people in there very well, and I've been there a lot of time. It's now a proper tequila bar. It has, you know, the 400 tequilas that you can choose from. It's very small. It's a very small place. It has a Mexican wrestling theme. It's very popular, quite authentic. And some of the staff had told me there that they've felt cold spots. They've felt sudden drafts. Things have fallen from shelves. And that kind of thing, you know, isn't especially convincing. But then someone told me that when they first started working there, they finished their shift and found a handful of candy in their, in their coat, actually in the hood of their coat. And I thought, well, that's not surprising. You know, maybe someone just, you know, put some candy in there, you know, to be nice. Mm-hmm. But then as I did some further investigation, I, I found out later that the, the sister of Encarnacion, who was called Hortensia, and also her stepdaughter, who was Martha, it was a family business. They all worked over there over the 40 years or so until they sold the business in the late 90s. And I was told, just completely in passing, that, that Martha and Hortensia used to give out handfuls of candy to people in the in El Carmen. They used to give them to them unexpectedly or they used to give them to them when they left. And that to me was a bit of a connection. I was like, that is a strange coincidence of the two things. And it's a sweet connection, I thought, you know, and it's a it's a place about restaurants and this was to do with candy. And I thought that's a good one for the book. And 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 they also have a couple of uh you know, they have cocktails, you know, a bloody Maria and a, and a true blood. So I thought that's a good way to go in. That's a good connection. And it's it's a very old building. It's one, one of the oldest in uh, in Los Angeles as well. And it's it's largely unchanged, although a lot smaller. I love those endearing stories where it's, you know, leaving you candy and that kind of thing. Those yeah, it was much sweet. more charming. I, I got a lot of stuff. I spoke to a lot of the family members, funnily enough, and they all used to say how much of a pleasant place it used to be to just to hang out. And how the, the ladies, the sisters, because it was all women, were all so nice and so kind. I mean, I actually found out that, that, that Jimi Hendrix was a fan and Mick Jagger was a fan. They were all there in the 60s. And, and that Fleetwood Mac, the, the sort of the classic lineup of Fleetwood Mac, actually formed in El Carmen in the late 70s. They all met there for margaritas. And wow. that was where they formed up into the lineup that we know today. So it was, it was, it was, it was a rock hangout, but it was also a place that people really liked. Oh, very cool. Sounds like a neat, neat location. Yeah, it's great. It's great fun in there. Okay, so those are our two Mexican restaurants. Is the next one Mexican as well? No, I've gone for an Irish one this time. I'm trying to keep it uh, keep the wide wide uh, selection. Oh, uh, this is a place called Tom Bergen's, which is a very old Irish bar, as you might imagine. Um, this opened in 1936 in its original location and, uh, and moved to its original location in, in the late 40s. Um, it was the bar that was supposed to have inspired Cheers. You remember the TV show? Yes, oh, yes, Where everyone we do. knows you. Yes, of course we do. That was supposed to be the inspiration for it. And the head barman, whose name was Chris Doyle, he was supposed to be the inspiration for Coach, who was the character oh. in the early few seasons. But it's uh, it's pretty much a typical Irish bar. It says Irish coffee outside. It's got a big shamrock 
uh, sign outside. It has a lot of shamrock, paper shamrocks attached to the ceiling. That's <laughs> kind of supposed to be a big honor in this town, is if you get your name on a shamrock in Tom Bergen's. Oh, interesting. But the main ghost story about that, and this was, again, one that several staff people told me, and, and it was completely normal, was that Tom Bergen, who, of course, was the owner, who's the late Tom Bergen, is very much often seen regularly still at the bar. He's seen at the bar. He's seen in his favorite booth. He's seen at the dining room in the back. Uh, he's near the fireplace. They recognized his suit. This, this apparition is wearing a suit. And also uh, his smell. He was a cigarette smoker back when you could smoke in the bars. And they said they, they can smell the smoke, cigarette smoke, and he's there. Um, it, it means that a lot of nighttime cleaning crews quit pretty regularly, I was told. But as for everyone else during the day, they're quite used to him being there. And, and also in, in terms of real, something really that happened there, there was a, there was a lady who was a, a long-term regular, and she, she died in her chair in the 1980s at the end of the bar. They used to, they used to let her kind of nod off at the end of the bar anyway, but one night she actually died, and there's a plaque on her seat there. So something did actually happen there, and she's supposed to appear there as well. So do they know how long she was dead before they realized she wasn't just like nodded off down there? Well, apparently she used to kind of regularly nod off. So they thought she just nodded off and they did the usual thing of, you know, come on, it's, it's time to go home. And they realized that, you know, she, she wasn't waking up this particular time. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, at least so she, that, she died doing something she loved, I guess. She did. There was, there was another place I, I found that's not on the list. It was, it was a tiki bar. You see, I do try and cover all the bases here. There's a tiki bar in North Hollywood here called the Tonga Hut. They had a regular, the lady who came in for decades with her husband. And uh, ironically, she never actually drank any of the rum or tiki drink. She was a gin and tonic person. But she and her husband came in for years and years. She carried on after her husband died. And then she too died. And they put a plaque on her chair. And she's been seen, apparently, still in her seat, still coming in for her regular drink at Happy Hour. Oh, and that's at the tiki bar where they do the plaques on the chairs, not at the Irish pub, right? No, there's one of both. That, that was like, that was the connection. There's, there's a plaque at the uh, in the Irish bar, Tom Bergen's, and they also put a plaque at the regular spot in the tiki bar as well. That's what tends to happen is that if you're a regular, and I suppose especially if you die die at your post, <laughs> you get a uh, you get a plaque. You get that honor. Yes, you you do get that honor. Yes, and as, as far as Food and drink goes. Obviously, it's an Irish place, so all I've ever had in there is Guinness, which is very good. <laughs> he must have really loved the place since he's sticking around to make sure they're running it right. That's what they say. They say there's a couple of there's several places in the books actually where people have said that the former owner's still here, and they think it's because they're keeping an eye on the place. Sometimes they're proactive, you know, um, poking people and prodding the staff, telling them to get moving, and sometimes they're just there. I mean, in, in fact, at Tom Bergen's, the Irish bar, they have a, a very big neon sign outside. And the story goes that when it's quiet in the bar, the sign flickers. And they don't know how it's done because it's all on one electric circuit. But when it's quiet, it flickers. And they reckon that's him trying to get a little bit more attention from people driving by to come in for a drink. <laughs> that's great. What's our next location? Uh, the next one uh, is called the Tamashanta, which is in Glendale. Um, and as you might guess from the name, it has a very Scottish theme very much in and out it looks a bit like a castle sort of mixed with a witch's witch's den on the outside there's there's also an english phone box outside as well and that's again this is a very old place as you can imagine a lot of the the entries in the book tend to be the older places rather than newer places um this is back from the again from the 1920s 1930s and pretty much been scottish themed throughout it's gone through a lot of changes but every time they've tried to change it to something different it's never worked out, and they went back to the Scottish theme. So there's the staff wear plaid and the kilts, and there are kilts and bagpipes and lots of pictures on the walls and uh, army stuff, that kind of thing. Very, very Scottish. But the big thing about the Tam O'Shanter, or the Tam as they called it, was that Walt Disney and a lot of his Imagineers used to come there. It was near towards where the original studios were. They, they sort of used it as a studio commissary. And he had his own table, which was uh, number 31. And there are a lot of pictures and things on the walls from these guys over the years who've done doodles and things, often to pay for their lunch, that are on the wall of the Tam If To give you an idea, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, or Toad of Toad Hall, if you've ever been to that at the, the yeah. one here in L.A., it's kind of like the Tam is. And and Disney are quite quite open about the fact that he was always there and was always working there. So his ghost is supposed to be there still haunting his table, which you need a reservation for, of course. 
there's another room, the Bonnie Prince Charlie room, which was a, a later addition to the building. There's a there's a ghost of a small child has been seen in there, and of course they called him Charlie. That's because he's supposed to be the ghost of Bonnie Prince Charlie, who was a Scottish pretender to the English throne. He's been seen. There's supposed to be a group of phantom diners who sit together around a table and a man who just wanders around, although he could be trying to find his way to the bar. Well, <laughs> I definitely would like to visit that one. That would be pretty incredible just to see the pictures that were drawn by Walt Disney and his people. That would be really, really cool. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really fun place, and it, it's really great. And it's, you know, it's very... It's not quite cheesy. I mean, they actually have some very good ales and they have like a, some very nice food and it's, it's part of a, like a prime rib chain, but it's not, a, a, you know, as, as awful as that might sound. So they do a very good roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, but the place itself is, is very well known. It's, it's a super sort of Disney place. There's actually another bar on Hollywood Boulevard called the Snow White Bar, which is very touristy, nothing special at all, but has pictures of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on the walls. Uh, like murals and you always wonder how they managed to get away with that because Disney's very protective of its of its assets but it turns out at the time um, Walt Disney or, or Walt Disney's employees did actually go to that bar very regularly and drew all that stuff on the walls themselves so it's actually officially allowed oh, wow. to continue to be the Snow White Cafe it's called and it's nothing special it's very small very touristy you know big pints of you know beer for six dollars that kind of thing but inside, if you actually go in, beautiful murals. Now, is that anywhere near the one that has the like where Disney and his friends went, or the? Oh no, no, no. That that that's, it, it's a fair. I mean, it, well, nothing's far from each other in Los Angeles. But if you're talking with driving, yes, then it could be forty minutes. But no, it, it's not. It, it's not exceptionally far, but it's not the same part of town. No, okay. but it's in the same direction because all the studios were a little bit out of town. You know, they're. It's a bit of a misnomer that all the studios were in Hollywood per se. You know, they were all a little bit further towards what we call the valley, which was sort of over the hill of Hollywood. And so that's where all the original studios were, and that's where they all worked. So they would all come and try and eat and drink locally. Well, I have to ask about the Scottish place. Do they serve haggis there? They do serve haggis there, okay. which I don't know how many people actually have it. I mean, I've had haggis before, and I, I quite like, you know, blood pudding and so forth. Mm -hmm. But that is quite a sort of an English-Scottish thing. And uh, most people here, especially, when you mention anything like that, you know, they're, they're sort of choke gagging for anything like that, you know, because it hasn't got yeah. kale in it. So. Yeah. Well, what about vegetarian haggis? We have. What's the point? What's the point of that? <laughs> vegetarian haggis. That's like a misnomer. What's funny is I have a friend who's from Scotland, and she kept telling me that I would have to try haggis. And they have the Epcot Food and Wine Festival here, and they have little booths for each country. And yes. at Scotland, they were serving vegetarian haggis. So I told her, "Hey, we finally tried haggis. It was vegetarian." And she goes, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Yes, it, it, it makes sense, and it's probably, I mean, it's a very acquired taste. It's a bit like, you know, liver and blood pudding and that kind of thing. It, it, you either like it or you don't, and, and haggis, you know, in, initially, even as a concept, is enough to put people off. Gotcha. Well, what's our next location? Okay, there's another place towards where the Tamashanta is. It's called El Cid, which is actually, it's not another Mexican place, it's a Spanish, Spanish place. And this, this goes back a very, very long way. Um, I, I found out about it a couple of years ago. It's, it's very well known for, for its paella is, is obviously the main, the main, uh, the main attraction there, the sangria and flamenco. They have a, a stage there and they, they do a lot of flamenco events, flamenco dancing. It was basically set up as a flamenco bar. Way back in 1915, um, they can trace the address itself back to um dw griffith who was who was filming birth of a nation very nearby may have even built part of the building uh, to do with that and in the early 20s it was called the jail cafe which i don't know if you've ever seen any of them we're very used today to themed cafes you know that might have like a dinosaur theme or you know like the heart attack grill in vegas you know they have a big theme mm -hmm. this was a theme cafe and it was laid out like a jail so you went in and it looked like a jail so you would sit in a cell <laughs> with like a simple table and the waiters would be dressed as convicts and there were essentially three meals you could have because it was a jail and there on the outside it looked like a jail and there would be people standing well they weren't real people but it looked like there were guards in the towers and that was the jail cafe that was what it was first and then in in the 60s it became el cid and it was very much specifically conceived as a place for flamenco for the spanish lifestyle now as far as as ghosts go that was another place where I, I did a talk there and everyone on the staff 
was very very clear that um, there was there was a ghost here more than one. Um, they were saying there's a there's a mischievous ghost who flashes uh, smashes glasses, turns the lights on and off, locks himself in the bathroom. That was one that came up a lot. The bathroom locks. And I said, well, but surely someone's just in the bathroom and can't undo the lock, you know, because the lock's on the inside. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, 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 it's just locked all the time. You can never get in there and there's never anyone in there. Someone say they saw that they've seen bottles float across the bar. Um, there was a guy when I was there said he'd seen someone the night before with a, with a ponytail walking through the bar at about 3 a.m. And there are two suspects as to who the ghost might be. And they both died within a year of each other, funny enough. There's a guy called Gino, Gino Dory, and he was the resident guitarist. He was the resident guitarist for like 35 years. Um, his dressing room, they, they still call the dressing room Gino's dressing room, and there's a picture of him in there above the ATM. They reckon he could be the ghost, and also uh, Clark Allen, who's the actual owner of the El Cid, he and his wife and El Cid. Um, he, was a, he was a folk singer as well and, and, and an occasional actor, and they reckon he could possibly the go be the ghost as well because very often there's guitar playing heard coming from the stage when everything's closed and switched off and, and they were both musicians. Gino especially of course was the flamenco guitarist for the resident flamenco guitarist. So that was a place um El Cid. It's a beautiful place. You go down off the street level and down onto a big patio and then inside is the huge stage with the velvet curtains. And a lovely paella on the weekends and the staff Absolutely, it's it's Gino or it's Clark or it's someone else, but they, they all have stories of ghosts. Wow, you know, I love that you've been to all these places and tried the food. That's just great. Well, that's the thing, and and, and like I say, sometimes I only sometimes I've only gone there for you know like a happy hour or had a drink. I mean, I did find that for the second book, I I, I concentrated less on the food for the second book because I realized that a lot of restaurants change their menus quite frequently. Sure. And a lot of restaurants are also seasonal. So I was I was I was realizing that people would open the book and go, well, this isn't they haven't got this on the menu, you know, because it's summer instead of winter. But what what I also found out was that in this particular area, as you can probably imagine, it wasn't the food and drink that people were the most interested in. You know, it's not real. I'm not a food critic. Sure. You know, it was just that you know I had to mention something. That, that was in the, the restaurants and, and, and the bars, because otherwise it looks like I could have just stuck a pin in the map. Well, yeah, and if you're using the, the title Gourmet Ghost, they might think, well, are you talking about the ghosts are cooking something? <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, a lot of people initially thought it was, you know, famous lunches that, you know, people had had with famous people, you know, famous lunches, you know, like, uh, sure. and I was thinking, well, I, I, I haven't had any lunches with anyone famous, so it's obviously not me. But I just thought that because of the G and the G and, and gourmet was just for the food and then ghost was for the ghost. I, I, thought, I, was, I was desperate to come up with something memorable, I thought, because I didn't think a single person would buy a copy. And I thought, well, I have to have a good name. If I have a good name, people can remember it. It's a good name. All right. So what is our next place? OK, the next one is uh, this is moving into to Hollywood proper, into the, the Hollywood Hills, which is several hundred meters above Hollywood Boulevard and, and the, the Chinese Theater and the, um, the Walk of Fame. There's a place called Yamashiro, which, um, again, we're, we're, I, I've never really realized how diverse all these restaurants are, but I'm quite, quite impressed. This was inspired by uh, the Japanese mountain palace, uh, Yamashiro. It was actually built by two brothers from Germany um, about 1914, 1913. And they, had, they were very rich, and they had been traveling around Asia, as was the way in those days. And they wanted a mansion to show all their many treasures which they had imported and, and bought while they were away. And it, it, when you look at it, and I won't go into it now, but the, the money they spent on this place is millions, millions of dollars. And this is 100 years ago. They bought um, craftsmen from, from Japan, from China, and there's an enormous bodega. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's a bodega there. The mansion is made of teak and cedar. There were, the rafters were lacquered in gold. There are bronze dragons in there. There's an inner court garden. I mean, it really is amazing. It's not only is it one of the best views in LA, but the building itself is amazing. And then there's the outside, there's huge landscaping. There's trees and shrubs, the waterfalls. They used to have lots of goldfish in there. There used to be a private zoo in there, little houseboats. There's a Japanese village. It just goes on and on. They have black swans in there that were imported. Wow. It's an amazing place. It's beautiful. And it still very much looks as it did from a uh, from when it was originally built. It, it, it had a very interesting history, which, which I won't go into, but the current owners, or at least until actually the end of last year, uh, restored it. Um, and I, uh, they took me down into the basement because there was a, there was talk that there were secret tunnels that led down from this, this Yamashiro down onto the street. And there were old Chinese artifacts in there, bells and pictures. 
And it, it was beautiful. It was amazing. As for the, the ghost stories, again, that was very clear. The staff were all very much, they just accepted it as part of, part of regular, regular life at the Yamashiro. So uh, several security guards had seen and heard people in rooms. They'd heard children crying, gone up to it to look, didn't find anybody there, came down. The big story that I heard was that there was talk a few years ago, quite a few years ago, of the family called the Glover family who owned Yamashiro and another building that I'm just going to talk about were looking to sell it. And they had arranged together, they were a big meeting in one of the rooms. It's got lots and lots of rooms and lots of rings. It sprawls out. And uh, there was an enormous sudden cacophony of noise. And it seemed like all the glasses and all the plates were being thrown off all the shelves. There's an enormous row. And all the family took that as some sort of message from beyond that they should not sell. And they didn't. Um, and the irony being, of course, at the end of last year, they did sell <laughs> to another company. But they did sell it at the end of last year. But... Thomas Glover, who's the original patriarch of the family, his ashes are in the central inner court garden. So he will always be there forever. And, and of course, the staff think he's still there. People have heard women walking around on the outside in the gardens when there's been no one there. There, there were many, many stories for Yamashira. I mean, about the best one was the sunset room, which is sort of one of these enormous wings of the building. There's a table number nine, which is right at the end, right at the side. It's got the best view, so you can never get it. You have to get a reservation. That's supposed to have a, a woman ghost who's seen sitting there all the time. And a psychic came in, one of my few psychic stories, and I was told that she had come in and felt there was a woman who was waiting there and had been waiting eternally for her husband to arrive. Mm. And that was a good story. And I thought that, that goes in there. And that's Yamashiro. It's an amazing place. It's, a, it's, it's, as you might imagine, it's sort of sushi and, um, soju and that kind of food. And it's, it's overpriced for what it is, but the <laughs> view is absolutely amazing. And the, the building is amazing. And so that, that definitely goes in there. And that was again another place where, where the staff were very much, I mean, every, it, as soon as, as soon as I opened my mouth and I was having the conversation, people were butting in and going, Oh yes. And then I saw this and this happened here. And it's supposed to be one of the people who worked at the bar, still there, walks through the bar. So that was, that was a really interesting one. It sounds like a beautiful place. And I'm just amazed when you said it was two German guys that built it to begin with. Yeah, it was two German guys. They, and they were a real interesting pair. Uh, one of them was very handsome. One of them was not. And uh, he was even supposed to have had a hunchback, the, the, oh. the less handsome one. And yet they were both very successful with the ladies, although, of course, they're both very rich. But, of course, they both suffered a fair bit in the two wars. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was, yes, they, they, they actually had to close down. And, and they were even during the Second World War, they thought that it was being used as a lighthouse, oh. you know, to signal the Germans and signal the Japanese, oh. you know, because it's right at the top of the hills. Mm -hmm. And they, they closed in. That was kind of the end for them after the war because the people were suspicious and they, they kind of realized that they had to go. So it, it's an enormously interesting story and it, it's an extremely popular place to go and visit. And it's still there and, and you know, it's 100 years old. It's over 100 years old. Neat. All right, what's our next yeah. place? Okay, well, then the next one is um, is actually right under Yamashiro on the same hill. It's right underneath it. It's called the Magic Castle, which you, which you may have heard of. Um, and it I does... Have really look like um, like a, a magic castle you would expect to look like, like a Disney castle. And it was built by a guy called Milt Larson and his brother and his wife. And it was literally kind of built out of old movie sets and old TV sets and stuff he used to go down and get out of skips and get out of uh, when they were redoing downtown. He used to go and, you know, take staircases and take pieces from old buildings. And he and his magician friends, it's, it's a magician's club. Um, it, it really is. It's a serious place in, in that terms. It's, it's, they call it the Mecca for, for magicians. It's a, it's a magician's club. So it has a, a library and it has a museum and it has enormous amount of posters and ephemera on the wall, which is, which are amazing. Mm. And it has five theaters in there. They built five theaters, which are for magic performances. So when you go there, you have to book in advance. It's a club. So you, you kind of have to know someone to get in. You book in, you have dinner. There's five bars, you can have a drink, you have dinner, and then there's the shows, which are at least two or three in of the theatres, and there are also magicians walking around doing close-up magic. Wow. And it's really quite an experience. And so that's the Magic Castle. That, that opened in the early 60s. And as you can imagine, it is, it is quite Disney. It, it's a little bit Disney in a way. It's very fun. They have their, their most famous ghost is Invisible Irma, <laughs> who sits at a piano and plays tunes. 
if you yes, if you put if you put a dollar on the on the little the little table and shout out a tune, she plays a tune for you. Now she has been captured on film. There's a very very surprisingly clear postcard of her, although she is all just a white sheet, and she plays tunes, amazingly up to date tunes on her piano. Um, she has a, a parrot in a cage, a, a skeleton parrot. He's alive as well, and he taps along to the music. And there are supposed to be uh, so that's that's very fun. But she's supposed to invoke based on a real person. But um, I think Milt Larson, who's often there, he has a big moustache. Uh, he has lots of stories. So I think we can, we can all take it with a bit of bit of a pinch of salt. But it is enormous fun. But he did, as I've spoken to him a number of times, I've interviewed him several times because he's got so many stories. He did tell me there are a couple of genuine ghost stories there. The first one is one of the bars is called the Hat and Hair Bar, which is an old English bar. He got, you know, he got the, the bar from somewhere else and he bought these places. I mean, it really is. If you walk around with him, he goes, you know, that's from The Late Show and that's from this program and that was from a magic show he did and that was from I Found That Downtown and that was... It's really built like that. It was a house originally, obviously, but he really made it into this thing. He said there's a bar there called the Hat and Hair. And he said he gets people coming up to him regularly saying, uh, that barman at the Hat and Hair, he's such a nice man. He's so pleasant. We were talking to him. We had a drink. He's so nice. And, of course, Mills always says, yes, he is. He is lovely. And he knows there's no one at the bar. It's not a bar that opens regularly. He doesn't schedule people to work there. He says it's the ghost of the, the bartender who was called Lauren Tate. He said that happens all the time. He said, you know, I know exactly who works here and I schedule all the working. People come up to me and say, we've just been at the Hat and Hair. The bartenders were so friendly and I know there's no one there. That There's no one working there. It has to be him. He also said that uh, the Palace of Mystery, which is one of the theatres there, they're big. There's a very big theatre and then they get progressively smaller. There was an elderly uh, magician called Chris Michaels who was waiting, I guess, like, like at his post. As if it was a bar, he was sitting behind stage waiting to go on in a chair and he just passed away in his sleep. Hmm. So they called him up to come on stage and that it was his time to perform and found he had, he had just died in, died in his sleep. And then as far as, as far as drinks go, we haven't mentioned drinks for a couple, but they have a couple of good drinks there. There's a corpse reviver number two, which is a good one there, very good for Halloween for zombies. And then there's a Billy's Nutty Irishman which is coffee with Baileys and Frangelico. And that was um, developed for Billy McComb, who was a, a very nice chap I interviewed a few times. He was an Irish musician who'd been over in America for oh, a thousand years. And he died a few years ago, but they still say that his ghost haunts the magic past as well. So they concocted that drink in honor of him. Apparently his favorite was uh, Captain, the Captain Morgan's Rum. That was his drink. But uh, they made a nutty Irishman in, in honor of him, and his ghost is supposed to be there as well. You know, these stories like what you told with the bartender are the ones that always amaze me because it's somebody who is full bodied enough that they think it's an actual real person. And if they're saying they were friendly, they had to have carried on a conversation and possibly this ghost mixed a drink for them. It just how do they yes, do it, that? It, it has to be something. I mean, it, it could easily have been that, you know, it was a mistake or that there was someone working the bar temporarily mm-hmm. or whatever. But he's mentioned this a number of times and he's always said to me, but like I say, you know, the, the, the magic castle is sort of full of chandeliers and sliding bookcases and, and sure. owls and, you know, mystery staircases and things. You know, there's a seance room in there as well that's, that's a Harry Houdini room and you can book it for a seance and, you know, the table will go up and down and it'll make lots of noises. So, He's an, he's an excellent storyteller, and whether that was another one of his stories, who knows. But he said that that, that does happen a lot, that, that people come to him in relation to that bar and say that the barman was there. And, you know, it could only have been the briefest of conversations, and maybe maybe the barman didn't even speak. Mm-hmm. But he said that that's happened a number of times. Wow. And he has no reason to lie about it, so that's fascinating. Well, he kind of does, because people come there and they, they love all that <laughs> stuff. But... Uh, that's, but, but that's part of the fun, though, and he would say that himself. He would say that himself. I mean, it's not, you know, a, a serious place. You know, it's a magician's club. It's, sure. it's, a, it's a place of illusion and trickery. It really is. I mean, that's, that's exactly what they're about. And so, of course, the, you know, they have, you know, the ghost who plays the piano. But, he, he, you know, he, he's told me a couple of other things. There's one other thing. He came down, there was, a, there was a power cut, which we do get occasionally here, or a blackout. And he said he had he'd been staying at the, the Magic Castle because he has an office there. And he said one evening he was woken up and he looked out the window and saw, you know, when you look down and all the lights are out in the street. Mm-hmm. So he knew there'd been a blackout and the magic castle was completely 
dark as well. And so he was fumbling his way down the stairs to try and get to the electricity switches. And he heard the piano playing, which, of course, is Invisible Irma. And he was like, that was frightening because I knew <laughs> it was ele- electrically run. <laughs> and I knew it couldn't work. It wasn't working on its own. Uh-huh. You know, it can't work on its own. I mean, because, you know, there's, I mean, I'm not giving away any secrets, but, you know, behind the bar, they do it. You know, they switch on the thing sure. and that's how they make it. You know, the, the, the keys move. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said that was he said that was actually frightening. He said because he he knew there was no electricity and he couldn't understand how that was working. Yeah, that would freak me out just a little bit, especially when all the power is out and the lights are out. So you're already in that frame of mind, and then you hear something that shouldn't be going. Oh, I exactly. Think, yes, yes. I think I would wet my pants. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what's our next location? Okay, I've done a. I've sort of ended up with a. Two or three famous ones here, which you might have heard of. So apologies if you know the story. But the, the Roosevelt Hotel, which is in Hollywood, that's a very famous hotel. They did the first Oscar ceremony was at the hotel here. And again, that was opened in 1927. It was the hotel where uh, Marilyn Monroe was supposed to have been discovered on the, um, the swimming pool diving board. There was a mirror there. That, that you probably have read about a lot of times called Marilyn's Mirror that was there for a long time in the hotel, though it's it's not there anymore. They moved it. No one really seems to know where it is, but it's called Marilyn's Mirror. It's a very large mirror, and it was in the hotel, and it was supposed to have been said that one night one of the, the cleaning ladies saw Marilyn Monroe's reflection in the mirror very clearly and was completely freaked out. And so they, of course, put the mirror kind of on display. It's, it's got like a sort of a Marilyn, I don't even know, etching next to it. And lots of people have said that they've seen her reflection in the mirror over the years, but they did move it two or three years ago and, and no one really seems to know where it is. So I think they've probably got a little bit tired of people just coming in to look at the mirror. Um, but the main ghost story there is, is to do with Montgomery Clift, who's the actor who I'm, I'm sure you remember. He stayed at the hotel when he was doing From Here to Eternity um, and he played a bugler. He was an army bugler in that movie and he used to play the bugle or try and play the bugle and and walk up and down the corridors doing his lines and practicing his instrument, that's supposed to be something that people still hear. They hear the bugle still playing. They hear someone going up and down the corridor at night. They even had um, a woman who came to stay at the hotel at one time and asked to stay in his room that he'd been in, which is very common in a lot of hotels that have stories like this. People ask for the specific room. And she brought a Ouija board with her and was trying to contact Montgomery Cliff and ended up, whatever happened, she ended up, checking out very early in the middle of the night, completely um, frightened, apparently, was what I was told by the staff. And then in the 80s, they had a, they reopened after a renovation. People have reported the sounds of children playing. There's been a, a ghost girl has been seen by the fountain in the lobby. Now, that was something I read a lot about. She's supposed to be called Caroline, this girl, and was supposed to be related to a telephone call that was um, placed to somebody who, who had come to the hotel with his children. And he was called up and his daughter was on the uh, end of the line and, you know, he'd left them alone and she had died. Now, I didn't know whether it was an accident or whether it was in the hotel or in the pool or in the room or something, but she's supposed to still be there. Having that was the, but I couldn't find any, any actual, um, information for that in the newspaper archives, which chances are that would have been made the papers in some way. I mean, every, every hotel, as I found out doing my research, every hotel has had suicides happen in it for obvious reasons. So it's, Every, that's happened in every hotel. And so, it, you know, there, there, are, there have been suicides at the, the Roosevelt Hotel. I mean, there's, there's, one in, there's one in 1932 here for a start. But the main reason that it's famous is because of Montgomery Clift. And people do go and visit that hotel specifically. There are bus tours here and history tours and ghost tours. And the Roosevelt Hotel is Montgomery Clift is supposed to still be there, still pacing the corridors still learning his coronet, I think it was, or trumpet. Well, you know what's interesting is the noise of a bugle is not something that you would typically hear in a room no, or not, on the street. not at all, no. I mean, even even with some of the, the hideous music that they play today, I mean, there, <laughs> there's, a, there's a very good swimming pool, like a David Hockney-designed pool that's very hip, and they play music there, but even then I think there'd be a stretch to hear, you know, the sound of a trumpet. And Denise, you heard that that woman brought a, a Ouija board into that room, so she was tempting the spirits, and she went running out of there. So that's what you get, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> and the one thing that's really struck me is a lot of these have children ghosts, and yes. they're, they're like bars yeah. and stuff like that. So it's kind of weird that there's children, children's spirits there. Yes, yeah, so that does turn up quite quite frequently, as I found. Um, the idea of the the woman in a in a white dress or a black dress or a red dress that turns up fairly commonly, and often often a small child, 
often a small girl. And I guess, you know, they're kind of related, a, a child and a, and a woman or a girl and a, and a woman. But I think it also represents in that way, especially as like something tragic, something innocent. You know, there's often probably nothing more upsetting than the death of a child. And so the, the idea of seeing a small child that has died or that is, you know, is is a spirit or hasn't passed on is, is a lot more upsetting than, you know, seeing a man in a suit where you might assume that something had happened and at least he'd had some sort of life. Whereas a child is always so much more upsetting and you want to help and it's emotionally engaging as opposed to an adult, which, you know, if it, if it happened a hundred years ago and they were poisoned, you couldn't have done anything about it. You see a child, your natural instinct, I think, is to be protective. Sure. I agree. All right. What's our next location? Okay, the next one is uh, is a place called Barney's Boonery, which uh, which has a good good alliterative name. That's in that's in West Hollywood. They have two or three um, outlets, but this is the original one. Um, and it was it was originally it was on Route 66 when when Route 66 came through that part of town, which it doesn't anymore. But it was it was originally on Route 66, and it does have a some quite sort of famous stories associated with it. Um, Quentin Tarantino was supposed to have written a lot of pulp fiction sitting at the bar here. Um, Jim Morrison was supposed to have urinated on the bar, so I hope nobody's having their dinner at this time. There's actually a plaque for that, believe it or not. There's actually a plaque at the bar <laughs> where it shows where Jim Morrison didn't necessarily sit, but he was obviously standing at the time. And it was also the last place that Janis Joplin had. She had her final drink before she went back to her hotel room, which isn't isn't that far away from Barney's Beanery. Uh, she had her final drink there, and that that's certainly documented. Um, she it was her regular regular hangout when she was there. So that was the last place that served Janis Joplin. But in terms of ghosts, I spoke to several people there, and, and a number of them had told me about a, a man in black. That was what they told me about. Um, they were saying that he's been felt in. It's a very large place, very much like a sports bar, very colourful and loud, lots of TVs, lots of beer, ephemera and souvenirs, quite tight aisles, quite thin aisles. So people have felt someone squeezing past them in the aisles and there's been no one there. He's been seen by the bathrooms, which are at the back, even the walk-in fridge. Um, I'd had several stories about that where obviously it's a walking fridge, it's very cold, but the kegs will move around on their own. And I said, well, you know, it's cold, they could be icy, you know, the, the ground could be a little bit wet. And I was being told it's not that at all. You know, they'll move up, up the slope rather than down the slope. So as far as a man in black goes, you know, I tried to look in the archives to see if something actually relates to a crime that happened there. And many years ago, where all the arcade games are now, there was a pool table and sort of gambling den at the back. And in 1973, one of the bartenders at Barney's Beanery was killed in a shooting after a game of pool. Mm. So I thought that could be the man in black. He would still be there, you know, because he, he'd been killed in a game of pool and he'd obviously lost. So he was, he was owed money. Mm-hmm. And then there was a very odd story that I was told. I'll, I'll try and keep short, but it was so odd when I found it. Someone who worked there told me she had heard that there had been a, a murder right outside the bar. Um, a jealous husband had killed another man right outside. And I thought, well, I can look that up. That's something that I can look up. And it, and it turns out in 1963, there was a confrontation between someone at who had been at Barney's Beanery and another guy who owned actually another restaurant nearby. And they had been, you know, fighting over the same wife. There was a, a jealousy thing. There was a fight. And the guy, one of the guys shot the other guy. And whether it was right outside Barney's Beanery, but it was in that area because even the second restaurant was nearby. And so I looked that up and it was quite the scandal at the time. But the, the weirdest thing was that the guy who, who was the murderer, who, who went to prison for manslaughter for 10 years for killing, killing his love rival, as it were, um, had actually, um, killed someone before using judo, uh, but that was justifiable homicide. But he later in his life, after being paroled, became Father Yod. Did you ever hear of that cult? Father Yod and the family, the Source family? I have not. That was a, that was a cult in, the, in, I guess, in the late 60s and 70s. And he was the leader of a, it was a pretty harmless sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll hippie cult. And they all lived together. He had 13 wives and, and you know, hundreds of children. And they lived together on the earnings from the restaurant that he still owned. It was a vegetarian restaurant. Um, but they ended up moving to Hawaii because he was worried about the apocalypse. And it, I think it was in Hawaii where he died in a hang gliding accident. Now, not that this necessarily relates to Barney's Beanery at all. However, what a great story. And there is the man in black. Well, it is a great story. And you have to think maybe his whole Armageddon was the fact that he, did you say he had 13 wives? 13 wives. 
Yeah, yes. Yes. Uh, he, he was definitely going for the tempting the spirits part. <laughs> yes, that, that, I think, no wonder he went hang gliding, because that's something you do on your own, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, he was definitely on his own there. Get away from all the wives and the children. All right, and now we have the uh, final one. Yes, and like I say, it's not necessarily the best one or the no. worst one or whatever, but I, I, I had to mention this because it is something to do with something something very famous. Um, there's the Biltmore Hotel, which is in downtown uh, Los Angeles. Again, it's another... One of the originals of 1912, 19, 1910, 1920, luxury downtown hotel. And it still is. It's one of the many, one of the few hotels that were built downtown that has stayed a luxury hotel, as it were. So it's completely glitzy and gold, chandeliers, staircases, angels everywhere. There's a tinkling piano. Uh, you can have afternoon tea there. Still very it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous place. They held some of the early Oscar ceremonies there although the Roosevelt had the first and it does have an immediate uh, ghost connection because in in Ghostbusters the 1984 movie it was in their lobby where they caught the first ghost in the story they filmed there it was it was called the Sedgwick Hotel in the movie but it was the Biltmore Hotel was where they filmed it so there's a, there's a bit of a ghost connection but as far as the hotel goes I spoke to a couple of security guards and there were a lot of stories there there was a there's been a man in a stovepipe hat has been seen in the corner of one of the function rooms. Um, children running across a balcony in another one of the function rooms, which is a locked balcony. You can't get to it. But the most famous thing uh, to do with the Biltmore Hotel is that it was the last place where the Black Dahlia was seen alive. Um, and, of course, you you know all about that story. Oh, yes, definitely. And uh, it's interesting that this was the last place that she was seen alive. It makes you wonder if she met the person who ended up leaving her dead in a very grotesque way. If that's where she met this person. Well, that's right. And and of course, in in, in researching my second book, I did do a, I went into a dive bar in Hollywood called the Frolic Room, and I was talking to the the bar bartender there. She'd worked there for a very long time, and she'd been she was telling me about when she talked to the bartender who worked there in the late forties which was when, when Elizabeth Short was murdered, he said that she had come in there in because the Biltmore Hotel was the last place she was officially seen alive. But the many accounts I've read where she was seen in other places because she wasn't found dead until a few days later. Mm-hmm. So And and she reckoned at the frolic room that she had met a guy there, mm. and that's the guy who had killed her. But the thing is, and, and sort of going... Going back to the theme of the book with, with food and drink is that at the Biltmore Hotel, they created a cocktail for the Black Dahlia. So it's called the Black Dahlia Cocktail. And I mean, if you can picture it, it's got vodka. It has a black raspberry liqueur and Kahlua. So oh, it's wow. completely black drink. Comes to you in like a martini glass with a little uh, wisp of orange or lemon. And it tastes horrible. But, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the point. The point is that it was, you know, created created for her uh-huh. um, and there was a, again as what I talked to the security guard he told me that he had been uh, he had been there one night when two cleaners who were working there had been frightened by something in a restaurant called Bernard's which is uh, in the rendezvous court area where they have the afternoon teas it's off this rendezvous court area it used to be a French restaurant but now it just does functions he said they've been cleaning in there and they'd come running out and they'd seen something that they called a black ghost or a black spirit and I thought okay black spirit black dahlia that's a pretty decent connection mm-hmm. interesting and so and again the Biltmore is absolutely beautiful there's a lovely bar in there called the gallery bar which is gorgeous and is worth going in I mean every time I, I go downtown I, I take a shortcut through the hotel just to walk through it because it's so gorgeous. And her ghost has been seen there, is that correct? Her ghost has been seen there, but like like a lot of the, uh, some other ones, she, her ghost has been seen at a lot of places. Sure. You know, often her ghost is seen, you know, and she's wearing all black and she's wearing sort of a tight black dress. And she wasn't last seen wearing a black dress. She wasn't, you know, that kind of thing. I wouldn't have mentioned it so much if uh, the security guard there hadn't told me how these women had said that they'd seen a black ghost. And I thought, okay, well, that that's a black uh, presence. If she's the Black Dahlia, people love the idea of the Black Dahlia. It was the last place she was seen alive, at least officially. That's good enough of a, of a connection for me. I mean, there are other stories at the, at the Biltmore Hotel, of course, but that's always pretty much going to be the most famous one. Well, this was like, I felt like we just went on an international tour of L.A. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I'm glad. I'm glad. It's, it's meant to be fun. I was going to say, I sound very serious when I'm doing all this, but it is a fun book. 
it's a fun book. It's like a fun read. They're all but sort of bite-sizey chunks of, of information. And, and there's some funny stuff in there as well, especially in the second book. I, I put a few more sort of weird and odd things in so that uh, because there's nothing weirder than real life was what I found. You know, you can't make a lot of these stories up because real life is weirder. That is very true. Absolutely. You know, you gave everybody a little bit of a taste of all of the places that you have in your book. So I encourage everybody to check them out. I'm looking forward to reading both of them. Where can people get a hold of them? Um, They're on Amazon, of course. And if you if you live in Los Angeles, they're available in quite a few of the quite a few stores here across the city, which is lucky. But on the whole, everyone can get them on Amazon like everything these days. Well, very cool. Well, James, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you contacting us and letting us know that your book was out there. And I think you're going to do really well with both of them. They just look like fascinating. And like you said, fun. And you went, well, I sound pretty serious. Actually, you have an upbeat sound to your voice. So you sounded like you were having fun telling the stories. I enjoyed it. Yes, it's all all very much fun. And and there's, there's more stuff on the website, which is Gourmet Ghosts dot com and and of course facebook twitter and all of those and so i put more stuff up on there and other stories that make it into the book and so forth and new things i find so i'm always putting stuff up because it's just interesting and people like it and i'm interested thank you again james for joining us and you have a great night thank you very much